you open your Bibles to uh, Joshua chapter 8, after uh, last week's feel-good sermon of the year, we will uh, try to uh, be uh, maybe a little more encouraging. It was a, um, some good feedback from that sermon, but some of the good feedback is uh, confession of sin, so it's always uh, painfully sanctifying is the bottom line. But we're going continuing to go straight through into Joshua 8, and Joshua 8 is the... Uh, the door of hope, if you will, that uh, the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble, uh, starts as, but then gets turned into a beautiful victory. Last week, though, uh, we saw that the trouble and the devastation um, that occurs when uh, hidden sin occurs and when people hide in sin, and it brought, it can bring a family uh, down as well as a family of families uh, which is kind of what we used to refer to the church and, and you could use to certainly refer to Israel. Uh, the sermon centered on a man named Achan. And it's easy, I think, for us to distance ourselves a little bit from Achan, but let's not forget that he was a, he was a man, just a guy. Uh, he was a husband. He was a dad. He was uh, a member of a community. He was a warrior, a fighter. And unfortunately, like us, he chose to find satisfaction and happiness in a, something as simple as a cloak and a few coins as opposed to finding satisfaction and happiness and joy in pure devotion to, to God. And uh, when he was confronted, uh, God basically had Joshua draw lots and it went from um, you know, tribes to clans to, uh, to families or households, I should say, to families, to individuals. And eventually went to Achan himself. And when he was confronted, he confessed. And he, however, and his entire household still shared the consequences of his sin. Even after the confession, which is sobering. Uh, so we can see, I think, and this is what last week's point was, we can see what it means to be Achan. And what it means to have hidden sin. And the, the possibilities or the probabilities maybe for what having hidden sin will do for you personally. If I was to preach that again, here are six different ways I would preach it. And I've just begun to see God's word is pretty rich and you just can't hit everything in, in you know, 45 minutes. This particular one, I started asking myself, what does it mean, yes, to be Achan, but what does it mean to be Joshua? And what if you're the leader responsible to have to call out the sin and deal with the sin um, and... There's no kidding anyone. Confronting sin in someone else is a very, very difficult thing to do. That's why it's not done very often. Um, and it's especially difficult, I think, to do when um, it's someone you love. And so we'll kind of confront it, maybe. That's the temptation there. Because it's hard. And so I can sympathize with Joshua's role as a leader, and hopefully we all can, wherever you happen to be maybe being called to lead or where you are actually leading, um, may not be a pastor, but maybe you're a husband or, or, or a wife or a father or a mother uh, or brother or sister or just even a friend or an employee in a particular community, and you uh, may have to deal with sin. Not that you're looking for it, but I do not believe um, when Joshua uh, was called to have to deal with the sin that he enjoyed what God commanded him to do. Um, Achan was not a Canaanite. Achan was not a citizen of Jericho. He was a friend, and he was a member of the family. 
And that's important to remember because when he is confronted with his sin, Joshua doesn't say, you know, hey, idiot, tell us your sin and what you did to screw this all up or we're going to kill you. Instead, if you read back in Joshua 6, he says with a very gentle but firm question, like the words from a father, my son, my son, tell me what you've done. And so it's very tempting when you have to deal with sin, when we have to deal with sin, in someone else in particular, to either minimize it or dismiss it or... Uh, even ignore it, to find some way to avoid having to confront it or actually call it what it is. Because if you're going to call it sin, what you're saying is that this person is in rebellion for this particular thing. And so what instead what we'd rather do is we'd rather redefine it, not call it sin so we can just encourage them. Um, Or we sometimes want to excuse it and blame it on something else so we can kind of psychologize it away. Uh, or sometimes we just close our eyes and just kind of wish it will go away if we just don't look at it. And it won't. It's what last week showed us. And any leader, quite frankly, any of those leaders that I listed, and you probably find yourself in one of those categories, any leader that does that, that dismisses or minimizes or ignores it, is, I believe, guilty themselves of rebellion. And they're guilty themselves of failing to follow God's command. So the truth is, if you are going to have to call someone out on sin, and that sounds even, but if you're going to have to identify and confront somebody, if you redefine it as not sin, then you will think that it's just something that can be managed away. When true sin and true rebellion, the the only solution for it is confession and repentance. And so if you avoid that, it'll actually never get healed. But it's very difficult to call someone to confess and to repent. Even saying those words, it's like, well, who are you? It's like, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And as the story of Achan reveals, sin must be atoned for if it's going to be removed. It's got to be atoned for. And confessing and repenting sin is not just a really good idea. It's a matter of life and death. It really is. And it is the reason for a sinless Jesus to come and die for sinners. That's what it all aims towards and points towards. And I've had this conversation with many people or told this to many people, and I've done it as, as fatherly as I can. And for whatever reason, it never is received very well. Um, because I basically tell the person, look, you cannot love sin and love Jesus. You can't love both. And Jesus himself said, although we, we kind of ignore sometimes this passage or use it for other purposes, he said Luke's, in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters, for he will, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, if you, if you love Jesus, you hate sin. And if you love Jesus and hate sin, and serve Jesus and hate sin, then you will hate sin in yourself, and you will also not appreciate it, or you will hate it, and those that you love. You don't want them to sin, is the bottom line. And if you serve Jesus, if you're devoted to Jesus, if you love Jesus, you will deal with the sin in your own life. You will confront it in your own life, especially before, but you will confront it in the lives of those you love. Should God reveal it? Okay? Now, that doesn't mean we have, you know, carte blanche to start 
searching as sin hunters and for the sin in everyone's lives. The reality is God is the one that brings it forward. God is the one that reveals it. The question is, when it is revealed, what do you do? If you love Jesus, you deal with it. You don't ignore it. So what we see today then is that gentle confrontation. I say gentle because I've often been accused of not being very gentle. So gentle confrontation, as gentle as you can make the truth, is the way to confession. And we see today that confession is the way to purity, and purity is the way to strength. Power always comes after purity, or purity always precedes power. Always. And so until you remove the sin through confession and repentance, you will be weak spiritually and discontent. Now, with the removal of sin, though, as best, obviously, as we can in this life where we will never be perfect, but the commitment to that is the promise of joy and victory over your enemies. And that's what we see today. Joy and victory does come. So in verse 1, it says this. Chapter 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all of the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock shall take us plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Now, after removing the sin from the camp, as commanded by God, now God said he's ready to fight for them Again, And he echoes the earlier thing he'd said to Joshua in chapter 1, where he said many times, be strong and courageous. And he reassures Joshua here not to fear in attacking the city a second time. And you have to go, why would he encourage him to not fear? And I think, as I've been meditating about this, I think he comforts him because we are very apt as people to dwell on our past failures. Very apt to use that as an excuse not to continue because of some past failure or some past defeat. And often the pain and the shame and the fear that this past sin that has happened, that we've committed or has been committed against us, can overwhelm us to the point of not following God and denying God's truth or His love or His word. And so what happens, I often see this, people who, who are kind of dwelling on those past defeats that they had, they become paralyzed. And they become unwilling to move, unable to serve, powerless to fight. They are ultimately governed by a sin that God, Jesus, has already forgiven. And we tell ourselves, at least maybe you've never done this, but I know I have, because I, yes, I have my past defeats that I have allowed to govern me at different times in my life, preventing me from moving forward. And what we start telling ourselves is that because of this, I am no longer qualified. I feel incompetent. I am insufficient. Blah, 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 blah. All these things, and we even maybe make them sound a little more spiritual than they are because that makes us feel good. But we use that as an excuse not to get up and not to move forward and not to fight and continue. And sometimes it's not our sins, but it's the sins of others. And we go, well, because of this, I don't trust that or him or her or whatever. And I will never let that happen again. 
And you're no longer governed by the power of God's word, the power of the forgiveness for you personally in the gospel, or the power of the gospel to move forward. You are trusting in something that happened in the back and being governed now in your decisions by it. And that's just wrong. Now, God says here to Joshua and to all of Israel, do not be afraid. Let it go. Get up, fight, move forward, and start living in the future promises of God and not the past disappointments of men, whether yours or someone else's. Get up, go. So Joshua does. Verse 3 says, So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain today, and I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them, and they shall come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, Ai, well, they are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you will rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. This is not Joshua's idea, this is God's. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai, but Joshua spent that night among the people. If we saw a map here, if you look in your study guide, you'd see it. Jericho, just north of Jericho, is Ai. To the west is Bethel, and they're going to go right between Ai and Bethel. Now, Joshua arose, verse 10, early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. And then the next two verses are kind of a flashback of the same thing. It says, He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard to the west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. So you've got a little ambush of 5,000 guys. Whether you have 30,000 or 25,000 up north of Ai, you're not really sure, but a big group of men and then a smaller group to the west. So, like Jericho, unlike the first battle of Ai, God says, I will give you the city. He promises to give the city into their hands. And so, unlike Jericho, God puts forward a fairly conventional or creative military plan to attack this city. It is a strategy to conquer the city that is not march around the walls and blow horns. It's very military. It feels like a, a plan. And where the battle of Jericho seems like it reveals just God's flat-out power and control, this seems to reveal God's creativity and maybe cleverness, if you will. And where the battle of Jericho shows God uh, doesn't really need us to fight, doesn't need our weapons, doesn't need our strategies, here in the battle of Ai, the second battle, shows that God at times wants us to fight in a very disciplined and strategic way. Now, God's plan, as we said, is to set this ambush. They're hidden, and what happens is Joshua, the main force, is on the north. They're going to go out in front of Ai. Ai is going to see them, and they will come out to meet them, their big fighting force, meeting on a big field. 
And as they come out, the Israelites are going to turn and run. It's exactly what they did last time. So they've already had a dress rehearsal for this. It should be pretty easy for them. So they're running away. And Ai, I guess, kind of depending upon their pride, will say, let's go take them. These guys are pansies. We're going to now wipe them all out together. So they will run out and keep going. Well, once they're out, then they will take the smaller force and they will come in uh, to uh, secretly or, or as they are running away and they will burn the city. Now, the last, well, this chapter, but even prior to this chapter, there's, there's a big emphasis on the unity of God's army here, on the, on the unity of his people that I think is important for us to note as we talk about battling uh, sin in particular. The sin of, of one man, it said, in the previous chapter, brought trouble on the entire community. And Joshua is told that, not that, hey, it, when the first thing he's told is, Achan, not Achan sinned, but Israel has sinned. And again, emphasizing this sense of community. And once Achan is identified by God through lots, once he's identified, Joshua is called to lead, but the entire family, the entire community, is expected to deal with the family business. Now, we see this in, in chapter 6, verse 24. It says, Joshua and all of Israel took Achan, and they, all of them, brought him to the valley of Achor. And then at the end, in verse 25, it says, All of Israel stoned him. So it wasn't just the elders, it wasn't just Joshua. All of the elders stoned, and all of them raised over a heap of stones over the entire household. Then it later says in, in chapter 7, Joshua and all of the fighting men arose, and they all went up together. And it says that they spent, Joshua spent the night with the people. Okay, so it's not Joshua against the bad guys. It is the community of God working together. The truth is, if you think about anything that's ever been accomplished, whether it be uh, in the church or not in the church, there's very few things in this world that are accomplished by individuals. There's always a group of people that are typically behind some of the great accomplishments in our world. And most often, victory and success and health is dependent upon the unity in that community. Now, doesn't mean you can't be unified about the wrong things, okay? Nazi Germany. So it's not just the unity. Unity for the sake of unity is meaningless and often destructive. Unity centered on Jesus and the gospel, beautiful, okay? That's important. Now, Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the unity of the church, that one of the purposes of the church is to be unified and to grow and be built up together. And when we say, as a, when we talk about the church as a family of families, we actually mean that. Okay? It gives you a picture of, of actually how the Bible calls us to function relationally. Now, that's beyond, although a good thing, looking at different people and saying, I'm going to have other members of the family over to my house for dinner and, and love on them and meet with them. That's a fantastic thing. That's what our road groups are. That's just what people do as, as because we love one another. Those are excellent things, but it's, it's more than that. If you're going to be a family of families and be truly unified, that means living as if you actually believe that another family member's struggles, their weaknesses, or their brokenness is not just a problem that they need to fix and figure out and then come back. 
It actually is a means by where we are all responsible for, that we actually encourage one another because we care for that person, we rejoice with one another, we cry with one another, we are actually family helping one another. Not, uh, you're dirty, and when you get that figured out, I'll love you. It's a family of families who are truly unified around the gospel. And so therefore, confronting sin, at least in Aiken's experience here, is a community experience. Why does that matter? Well, let me tell you how that matters as a pastor. We've had one, in our four years, by God's grace, we've had one public discipline issue that we had to deal with. Confronting sin is supposed to be a community experience. It is not supposed to be the elders against the congregation. It is supposed to be, I mean, it's really bad probably to be up there. It is supposed to be the family protecting the purity of the family. That's what it's about. It's not about, hey, the elders say this and they're screwed up. No, it's about the elders are leading the family in protecting the purity of the family that is centered on Jesus and nothing else. That's a very different picture of unity than maybe we're led to believe sometimes. Now, one, I would say the same goes for any of the communities that we are in. And Think about this, a marriage, for example. I do not believe that if a marriage is broken, if a marriage is, is struggling... It's difficult for me to see how one spouse alone can fix that if they're not both committed and unified in fixing it and committed and unified around the right thing to fix it. The same goes with a family. Yes, there are, there are single-parent homes, and I think that they need, especially from the church, love and encouragement and support and all these things. But if it's, if it's a family with parents, I will say that one parent can't parent an entire family effectively. I'm saying if there's a husband and a wife there. And what happens a lot of times is, quite frankly, dads are pathetic. And hopefully the wife takes care of these parenting, the discipline, all that stuff. If you're not unified around the same things, it's going to be very difficult and impossible, I think. One man, namely a seven-foot Dutchman named Jim Fickert, doesn't have a hope of planting a church by himself. It's not about Jim. It's not that Jim's, you know, uh, an unskilled guy. It's not that he's not competent. I think he's a very gifted man. But without the unity of a community around him, without a group of people that he can lead with, Jim's just going to point to the hills and everyone else is going to charge. There's no way it'll happen. Unity has to be a part of it. It's still not good, as God said in the book of Genesis, it's still not good, I believe, for men to be alone. And it's part of God's plan that we are a family of families concerned with and fighting for one another. That's what God's, I believe, purpose is. So they go up together into battle. Verse 14, here's what the battle looks like. As soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all this people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them, which I'm sure you said, hey guys, just do what you did last time. It'll work fine, okay? Just trying to get stabbed in the back when you're running. And fled in the direction of the wilderness. 
So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. As they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they get a twofer at this point because Bethel is uh, to the west of Ai. They're in the valley between it. And Bethel, for whatever reason, maybe they had some kind of treaty or whatever, they empty their city out as well in pursuing Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush, the 5,000, rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness suddenly turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped, but the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. So you can see, obviously, what happened. The trap was set. Joshua proceeds to coax the warriors out with his good acting job, pretending to be beaten. They run away. They pour out the city. And as soon as the ambush goes in, um, the, uh, it's lit on fire. And I, I, the thing that's interesting about this, if we just kind of, on a, on a side note, AI is left open and vulnerable because the men... We don't really know exactly what they were thinking. I think they were prideful. And it reminds me, quite frankly, of a lot of men, this may be a strange metaphor, that go battle pridefully, go fight for whatever. A lot of sinful men, husbands and fathers and others, because of their pride, do just this. They leave their families vulnerable. This is, a, this is so obvious uh, in the world today. In the name of success, in the name of, you know, whatever dragons you feel like you need to slay, their primary responsibility of their first church is ignored. Uh, and people are left vulnerable. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit of a stretch. I don't think necessarily the text meant that, but that was the thing that, that hit me powerfully. But as the city is emptied, God commands Joshua to signal the men, and they, they lay in ambush. They enter the city. They burn it, and the smokes come up. They see the smoke. They turn around. Guys are coming out of the city to fight them. Those that were fleeing come and fight them, and they kill everybody except the king. And we shouldn't ignore the fact, the beautiful, beautiful fact, that God granted a victory here against an enemy that defeated them at one time. And that's got to feel encouraging to them, because I know for myself, maybe you're different, we have all been defeated at some point and left somewhat hopeless or at least fearful by some sin in our lives, perhaps um, more than once, perhaps for many years, you have felt defeated by something you couldn't overcome. And though God promises victory in our battles against sin, I don't know if we always feel or even look victorious. I don't. Now, as we saw with Achan, you have to ask, okay, why is that? Well, as we saw with Achan, sometimes, not every time, sometimes, though, the absence of victory over sin or, or growth spiritually is the result of hidden sin somewhere else. That's just a reality. 
But I don't want to get to the place where theologically we say any problem you have is because of some hidden sin, and if you would just confess, you'll be okay. But we do have to at least say that's a possibility, and we better be sure that we have examined our own hearts and let the Holy Spirit show us if that's true. But sometimes that's not the case. And if we live with a pure conscience before God, if we have confessed the sins that we know we should be confessing, if we are attempting to walk in the light and walk by the Spirit and avoid the darkness and avoid the flesh, what do we do or how do we explain being defeated again and again and again and again? I asked the question so you didn't have to, okay? Because that's a question I want to know. So, here's my take on it. I think we have to be honest and say that there are, the Bible even says that some battles are tougher than others. Some battles are just flat out more difficult than others. And especially if we're relying on our own strength to win them, makes them even more difficult. But one thing we have to admit that spiritually, all sins in the eyes of God are sinful. There's no greater or worse sins in the, in the eyes of God. The one lawgiver gave one law. You break any aspect of the law, you are a lawbreaker, and you are sinful. Okay? We, we establish that fact. But there are those sins that are more difficult to conquer. There are those sins with greater just practical consequences than others. That is just flat-out reality. And even Jesus talked about that because his disciples had tried to cast out a demon of a young man, I believe. And when he came, and they were like, we can't do this. And there might have been a lot of reasons that they couldn't. But Jesus did say that this kind was very difficult and only driven out by prayer, and some translations add fasting. So the reality is there are those sins that are harder to conquer. And it's not that, you know... For one thing, for you, go, well, this isn't a temptation to me. It might be for someone else, and it's difficult for them to conquer. So there's all kinds of flavors of trials and all kinds of difficult sins, some more difficult than others. And knowing that some battles are more difficult than others, I do believe also that some battles need special strategies. Now, we see this with Jericho and Ai, two very distinctive battles. After this, you don't see the battles gone in such detail as these two. So you have a, a model that's established for us uh, as what's going to happen maybe for the rest of the conquest and what's going to happen even in our own lives. Sometimes we need special strategies. Some people do experience a Jericho type of victory of freedom over slavery to sin. You just let go and let God. Okay? Some people, they, Jesus saves them and they're like, I just have no sinful desires for that thing that enslaved me before. It's just gone. No explanation. We go, God be praised. That does happen to people. I've known people close to me that have had that experience. But let's be real. That doesn't happen for every sin for everybody. And so what happens is that there are some sins that captivate us, and they're difficult to conquer. The fact that God uses a battle plan here to defeat Ai can teach us a lot, I believe, about the discipline required for some of our own battles against sin. Now, sometimes, sometimes we wrongly try to march around Ai and we wrongly try to strategize at Jericho. 
And I don't know if we can figure out, well, what's the perfect thing, but we have to at least consider and meditate on it. There are some battles that God expects us to exercise a different level or different kind of discipline in defeating sin as he fights for us. Let's never forget that Jesus is the one fighting. But he still requires us to fight and to have some responsibility in it. Some, it's going to feel like, dude, he just blew the walls down and I have to do anything except scream. And others, you can be like, no, you have to be more disciplined with it. Now, what kind of discipline does that include? Well, all kinds of things. There's all kinds of ways to fight. But I think that there are means of grace that come through something as simple as gathering as with the church, as regularly praying. I mean, really praying, like scheduling prayer because you're not disciplined enough in prayer. Discipline reading of Scripture. Discipline studies. Okay? Now, let me just give you an example. We've got a group that meets on Saturday mornings, and it's basically a, a big catch-all for addiction. And there are different levels or different kinds of addictions that it can, it can minister to. A lot of the addictions that I see plugging the church today uh, have to do with sexual addiction. In fact, the last statistic was like 75% of, of men in particular in, in church were struggling with a sexual addiction of com- some kind. Now, there are varying degrees of that. But the reality is if you're a guy, you lust. I know right now, I'm like, well, not, you're a liar. Okay, so now you're a liar and a lustful guy. So the reality is every guy lusts, but not every guy lusts in the same way. There are some guys that, you know, is the uh, everyday lustful guy that just struggles with temptation because of, of looking at, you know, various things. And then there are guys that are immersed in pornography and are fully addicted, just as an alcoholic is addicted to his alcohol, okay? So there are varying degrees. Well, some guys, all guys, could use some level of plan and strategy to not lust. When I was teaching at the high school, my strategy was, look at the ground, okay? Worked great, and I talked about my wife a lot. That was seriously how I battled lust, because okay? I wanted them to know, hey, I'm married, I'm going to remind myself I'm married, and I'm staring at the ground because you should not be wearing stuff. And I sometimes made them wear like really ugly sweatshirts, and I said, you are hoochified hoochie mama, put something on right now. Okay? So I just flat out attacked it. Now, on the same respect, there are some guys that are flat out, that's, they, are, they are seeking out their sin privately with great discipline. Right? And it's funny how many guys I say, hey, here's a study for you. I think you should do this. And they go, well, I'm just not a very disciplined guy. And you're very disciplined with your sin. You've learned how to hide it, where to find it. Don't tell me you're not disciplined. You're just disciplined about the wrong things. But the reality is some people are bleeding out and need triage. Some people need a Band-Aid and a little, you know, cough medicine. Some people need some emergent care. And so there are disciplined strategies that men can participate or other people can participate that may be required for a time for you to defeat that sin, still empowered by God, still by the grace of God, but ultimately a means by which God can use for you to experience victory. Not guaranteed, but I'm saying there's got to be some strategies here. Some battles need them. Then I will say that all battles, yes, some are greater than others, some need uh, specific strategies, then there are all battles, I think, often fail in this one strategy. I don't know if you've ever experienced, but one of the most common mistakes people make is they fight the same battle over and over and over and over again, 
and, and think it's going to change, and they're doing it the same way. And I think we do this because people misunderstand true repentance. Now, repentance is the turning away from sin. Now, I'm not going to complete the definition because that's usually where we stop. We kind of do this halfway turn where we bare knuckle and go, I'm going to resist sin. I'm going to stop seeking happiness and satisfaction in that thing that's not God. And we build all kinds of, some good strategies, okay? The reality is if, if you're struggling with pornography or computer, there comes a point where you say, stop using your computer. Throw your computer away if that is such a temptation. So there are certain things that this radical amputation that takes place, but that can't be everything. You can't just repent by resisting sin. You actually have to turn and pursue God. It's not enough to not just find happiness in that thing. You have to find happiness and satisfaction in God. So you always have to have two battle plans. And as guys in accountability groups, they're always talking about, here's my battle plan. I'm going to stare at the ground. I'm going to get rid of my computer. I'm only going to put pictures of my wife up on my car and stare at them all day. And like, beautiful. That's fantastic. Then what? Because that might get you to resist sin, but it's not going to fill your heart with God. And so you actually have to have a battle plan in pursuing God. What does that look like even for you? To pursue satisfaction in God, to find joy in God, to fight for joy and satisfaction in God. Because you've learned or done a lot of fighting for unsatisfaction or satisfaction in things that are not Him. And then I'll give you the scary one. Ready? This is a scary one. There are some battles that God wants you to stay in a bit longer. There's some battles and trials that God puts you in and he wants you there. And he's not going to give you victory for a while. You go, why? Because God is trying to make you look more like his son. So you think about something like Paul, who had a thorn in the flesh, and there's all kinds of different opinions of what that was. Some scholars say it was bad eyes. Some say it was mother-in-law. You know, you go, I'm serious. There are, there are those that say that. So don't leave here going, well, my mother-in-law is my thorn, and I'm going to continue to pray that she will go away. Um, but the truth is that, that Paul prayed fervently for that thorn to be removed, whatever it was. And God answered his prayer, but not according to Paul's desires. And he told Paul, no, because my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And the reality was being in that trial moved Paul to a place where he actively had to depend upon Jesus. He was reminded to constantly have to pursue Jesus because of that thorn. So I'm not saying that that battle you have, you just oh, well, I'm going to throw my hands up, whatever. I'm just saying God may have you in the battle a little bit longer than you may desire so that you will depend upon his grace and not your own strength. Verse 24, though, let's see what happens after the battle. It says, When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them, to the very last, had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not drop back his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. 
I really like this little last verse. And here's why. And this might be a, a newsflash to you, but Jesus doesn't save us to make us uh, these pure party poopers devoid of pleasure in life. Okay? Um, Jesus, I will. He doesn't save you to be a pure party pooper devoid of pleasure in this life. Now let me say that God doesn't guarantee you prosperity, success in the the material ways of life. He does not guarantee you that. But he did make this world for us to enjoy to his glory. Catch that? He did make creation for us to enjoy to his glory. Now, knowing that, when Israel finished destroying Ai's inhabitants, unlike Jericho, God commands Joshua, because it's a command, not a suggestion, commands Joshua and the Israelites to enjoy the spoil of the city for themselves. Now, Jericho had been a first fruit sacrifice to God, where the first of the fruit of the land, because they even burned the harvest seeds and things that were there, the first of the fruit of the land was set before the Lord as an act of worship to Him. It was devoted to Him. In the same way, well, that giving, I should say, of, their, of our time, of our money, of our energy, our, our resources, are supposed to be in the same way, joy-filled responses to God's provision, to the fact that we are accepted, to the fact that we are saved, not to be saved. There's a huge chasm of difference between those two. And we're not to play these financial, or I should say, not even financial, but these, these percentage math games where we're like, you know what, God, I'm going to give you 2% of my time here. I'm going to give you 3% of my money and 5% of my goodwill. That's 10. I mean, that works itself out, right? And 10 is, is nothing but this Old Testament standard by which I think is a great bare minimum to start with. But God demands the first fruits of all aspects of our lives. Catch that? Money is just one thing. And for some people, the easiest thing to give. All aspects of our life are supposed to be first fruits, devotion to God. That percentage of our time, that percent of our service, of our energy, of our resources, of all that we have because it's all given by God. And then the rest is for us to enjoy. The rest is for you to enjoy. Does that mean that I, I, can, I don't have to drive around a clunker, you know, to demonstrate my great humility and piety of how I want to suffer for Jesus? And Hey, the question is, have you given your first fruits to God? That's the question. And the first fruits isn't a number. New Testament talks about, is it sacrificial for you? Can you do it joyfully? You do it intentionally. Those types of things. And that's not just money. I'm talking about your time, your service, all these things. And if all of that is squared away, if you are glorifying God with all your first fruits, enjoy the rest of the fruit. You notice it's not the all fruit devotion to God. It's the first fruits. And he says, and I've made this so you can have pleasure in it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. I read a blog of Pastor Roy, uh, Ray, Orton, Roy, Ray Ortland Jr. I can't even say his name. And he talked about this concept uh, in living in the grace of God. And he had a car 
that he named uh, Law. And it was a, a typical pastor car that you would maybe expect, like, you know, pastors shouldn't drive nice cars because they need to look piety and, and, and humble. And so he actually uh, lived that. He had this just piece of junk car that was, you know, 30 years old. It was some Buick, and it was very reliable, but he called it Law. Named his cars. And so he drove it for years, and, and, and it was a clunker, and then one day it just died. And we had it for so long that it just was, you know, it was dead. So he decided to buy a new car. And he was going to name this car Grace. And he bought a brand new Mustang. <laughs> and he went to pick up uh, another uh, well-known pastor friend of his at the airport. And the pastor got in the car, and he said, Wow, Ray, it's a very reformed car. <laughs> and it's living in the grace this is a guy that's sold out to Jesus. This is a guy that gives way more than whatever you might imagine him giving. And, and God intends us to have some pleasure. It's his pleasure about the right things and in the right way. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God is the measure of all things. Last part here. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day, and he hang the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate at the city, raised over a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. So the narrative ends with the execution of the king, and God had commanded, actually, this in Deuteronomy, how to deal with criminals uh, like the king here. Uh, in Deuteronomy 21, it said, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So Joshua commands, and they follow uh, the law of God to the letter. And this, I think, seemingly barbaric act, I don't know how much more barbaric it is than stoning, um, but it is... Clearly a demonstration of God's judgment, again, on all sin and rebellion, just as it had been a demonstration on his own people. And without question, I guess hanging is, is pretty gruesome, but uh, the stark image, I think, of this shouldn't cause us to necessarily be really empathetic towards the king as much as fearful of uh, God. And it should cause us to flee from the rebellion that necessitated the hanging. But I will say that the truth is this, and this is what we don't want to face. We see this pastor like, yeah, way to go, king. You know, we're going to kill him. He's a rebel. The truth is, all of us, all of us are condemned by the law of God in the same way. And we all, as rebels, deserve to be hung on a tree. Now, I know I say that, and you're like, I'm pretty good, though. Okay? <laughs> Truth is, I, maybe you, I don't know, I can speak for myself. We have sinned. The Bible says that the penalty of sin is death. Whether it was, well, I dis disobeyed parents, or I murdered, or I whatever. The law giver gave one law, and whatever part of that law is broken, you become a law breaker. No matter how much good you have done in your life, you are still guilty. By nature and by choice, you are a lawbreaker. 
you are a lawbreaker, I'm a lawbreaker, we are just as guilty, then the law of God justly condemns our rebellion. Now, instead of you being hung on a tree, though, there was another king. Wow, it's like it's all one story. There was another king, a perfect, sinless king, who hung on a tree so I didn't have to, that you and I might be forgiven. And in speaking about Jesus and law and grace, Paul references the same Deuteronomy passage in Galatians chapter 3. And here's what he says. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Guilty! 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 I am guilty. I am a lawbreaker. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The only thing the law can do is tell us how sinful we are. It says, no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not does them, shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, quote, from Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we, I, might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So the law condemns me and everyone as a sinner. Sinners are not saved because they're able to do right instead of wrong or good instead of bad. Sinners are not saved because you never stole from God. Sinners are not accepted because you have a perfect battle plan. Sinners are not saved because when you die, you have more victories than you do defeats. Sinners are not saved because of anything good in themselves. Sinners are saved by putting faith and trust in Jesus in what he did right, in how he glorified God, and the victory that he had. I am saved, and anyone who confesses Jesus is saved because my perfect law-abiding king hung on a tree for me, a law-breaker. That's the gospel. And like the king of Ai, our king was also buried under stone. But unlike the king of Ai, he was only buried for three days. And on the third day, he rose again. Well, so what? So what? In doing that, he proved that he had conquered all of sin, all of death, and he had the power, the authority, and the willingness to give me new life. And in him, I have strength. And in him, I can fight. And whether I feel like I'm winning or losing, I win. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Never forget the tomb is empty. And as you're battling, 
and you feel, I don't know if I'm going to win this one, you've won. Keep fighting. But we fight knowing that Jesus has already been victorious. We'll close with 1 John 5.4. says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now I know a lot of us are in the midst of a battle right now, fighting against sin, some that have plugged us for years. And I pray you'll get to a place of confession and repentance and ask for help and encouragement from the community if it's not working for you. But as we take communion every Sunday, we need to remember a couple things. I used to always hear, like, get your heart right. Right? Get your heart right. And there's truth in that. If there's hidden sin, the last thing you want to do is, is come up here and, and basically shame the crucifixion of Jesus by hiding your sin and then pretending like you have been forgiven and you've confessed. So without question, if you have hidden sin, you need to confess that before you come to the table. But don't ever believe that you're coming to the table because you're suddenly right. We come to the table because we recognize that we are broken and ultimately we are only made right in what Jesus has done. That's why we come. So even if you're feeling beat up and defeated, Jesus won. And live in his victory and his future promises and not the disappointments of you or other people that have let you down. Let's pray. Father, we lift up everything that you have done to bring us back to you. We rest, Father, not in our own strength, not in our own skills and ability to fight, but in the fact that, Father, you empower us and give us desires to fight, to love you more, to resist sin, and to glorify you along the way. I pray, Father, you will help us all to battle, to fight for you, to be disciplined in our pursuit of you and not just in our resistance against sin. And ultimately help us rest, Father, whether we win or lose in this place, that there is an eternity that we get to spend with you where we are victorious, where we are perfect, where sin no longer has any control over us, where death is not even a factor may be glorified in our life and how we worship you with song. In the blood of Jesus we pray. Amen. And just so we're clear that we don't train for godliness apart from God's grace, it's all a means of grace. We'll end with Titus chapter 2. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Amen. Go in the grace of Jesus.